You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 37. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue, uh, pick up back in our series of the book of Genesis, which we started last January. And uh, we're going to finish uh, this series uh, in the coming months. But church, just let me say, I enjoyed singing with you down here on the front row. Uh, and uh, this past Thursday, I had an opportunity to, to preach to a group of college student, students. And man, can they sing passionately. But I would hold uh, what we just did together, congregationally singing, a beautiful time. And Nate and I have been talking about how do we hold up the singing of God's word uh, and God's uh, commands to us and do that in a great way, congregationally, so that you hear each other sing. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. So thank you for singing out to our great God. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab one of those hard black cover Bibles and turn to page 32 to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please take this Bible. Uh, we want you to have one and uh, take it with you so that you can read God's Word uh, with us and uh, have one of your own to study. Uh, so if you don't have one, you can turn to page 32 to follow along with us. Hear what the psalmist writes in Psalm 43. Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? Suffering. It's something that uh, you are used to. You know about. You know the difficulties of our sinful and broken world. We can ask the question, where is God? Where is God? Does he not care? Is he sleeping? What is he going to do about our situation? You may have found yourself in that very moment, in that very question of God, why? And often we feel like God is not there, that God doesn't hear us or God doesn't know what's going on. In church, we would be tempted wrongly to believe that. But our God is always in control, always working, always ready to fight for us. As we've been singing the whole morning, our God is sovereign and although we may not know what is happening and the reasons why he is in full control. And our story this morning gives us a beautiful picture of a great God who's in control. And no matter what happens, his plan of restoration will not be thwarted. Our God will see his plan through. Our God is truly for us. So we start this morning, as we jump back into the book of Genesis, I want to give us a quick recap. Uh, it's been a little bit. It's been uh, eight, or, eight or so weeks that we've been in. Uh, it was Christmas, and then we had a few sermons to help us focus for the year. So I want to give us a quick recap. And if you uh, signed up for our Bible reading plan, you've actually been reading this uh, yourself. You actually are now in Genesis 47. So you uh, actually got a good recap uh, reading through God's Word over the past Three weeks, but let me give one quickly to you if you are new this morning. Number one, we know that God created a wonderful world in Genesis chapter one. It was beautiful. It was, ma it was magnificent. 
God made Adam and Eve to live there in the Garden of Eden forever to enjoy him. He gave him one command. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat that fruit. Well, we know that in chapter 3, Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God's command after being tempted by the serpent. And they ate the woman first and then the man. And they brought death and condemnation down on themselves because they had rejected God's loving and caring protection of them. But in Genesis 3.15, God promised that there would be a son. He promised a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And now we've been waiting, watching. Where is this son? Where is this seed who is going to crush the head of the serpent? We think it might be Abel. But Cain kills him. Could it be Seth? No, Seth dies. And we see this progression of how the world gets worse, so much so that Noah, God has to get Noah and build an ark, and he has to save his family because he floods and destroys sin on the world. But in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man called Abram. He calls him to leave his father and mother to, to the land that he's going to show him. God calls Abraham to give him the land of Canaan. And in chapter 15, we see God promise that he is going to be a great nation, chapters 12 and 15. In chapter 17, he, he gives a covenant, and, and actually God takes on the covenant promise himself that God, it will be dependent on him to make this promise happen. So now we follow the family of Abraham. Where is this son? Where is this seed who is going to crush the head of the serpent? Abraham has a son. It's Isaac. God tests Abraham. To offer up Isaac. And, and Abraham does. But God provides a ram, a sacrifice. What we see in Isaac's life, it's not Isaac. He's not the seed that's going to crush the serpent. Then we get to, to two sons, Jacob and Esau. In chapters 25, 26, 27, 28. And God chooses Jacob. But he doesn't choose Jacob because Jacob's this great son. And we actually, he's actually the opposite of that. Jacob's a deceiver. Jacob's a liar, and so he deceives his brother, gets his birthright, and then deceives his father and takes Jacob's blessing. He takes Esau's rightful blessing. And so Jacob flees for his life because Esau's going to kill him. And he ends up with his uncle Laban for a few chapters. But in the midst of that running... In the midst of Jacob running, we're like, how is God going to continue his plan of restoration through this person, Jacob? God assures him in a dream, multiple dreams, that I will be with you. I will be your God. You will have this land and you will have descendants who will ultimately one day there will be a king from your line. And that's where we pick up now. Jacob has come back to the land of Canaan. He is settled there and we pick up now to talk about his family. So here's what we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 37. The story of Abraham's family continues as Jacob's sons experience the same strife from sin that leads them to sell Joseph into slavery. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. And if you're a disciple, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. There is comfort in the fact that God can use evil deeds to fulfill his plan of restoration. 
There is comfort in the fact that God can use evil deeds, even the evil deeds of his people, to bring about his plan of restoration. Sin and evil cannot stop our God from doing what he has promised, that he will restore people to himself. The church is often overwhelmed by the evil in our world, but our God is not. We fear that God is absent or that he doesn't care. And if I'm really honest, church, I'm often tempted to believe that God doesn't get into the the minutia of our problems. But that just isn't true. Our God is always working, always for us. And so this chapter is a story about Jacob's family. It's about the things that have happened up to this point. It's about now what happens to his family, and it centers around the person of Joseph. There's going to be a major fracture in the peace of God's people here, the family of Jacob. But God will use it to preserve his people and heal them and provide reconciliation to the family, even though they end up in Egypt. Our God is good. And so now as we start the story of Joseph, as we finish off the the book of Genesis, this chapter is really important for us to understand what God's doing and how he's going to accomplish his plan. So this morning I want to ask three questions of our text. Three questions of our text that I think they're going to help us understand the text, how it points to Jesus, and how we can apply it to our lives today. So number one, if you're taking notes, first question, what do we see in the passage? What do we see in the passage? Look back down at verse 1. Jacob lived in a land where his father had stayed. That's Isaac, the land of Canaan. That's the story we pick up now. And I want you to see this. There are two family traits that we see here in the passage. Number one, the first trait is favoritism. Favoritism leading to conflict. Jump into verse 2. These are the family records of Jacob. This is the last family record of the book. This is the 10th family record. And now we're going to focus on Joseph in great detail. At age 17, years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. He was an apprentice shepherd. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah that were the slaves of Rachel and Leah. And they were wives to Jacob. And he brought a bad report about them to his father. So literally, Joseph tattletailed on Uh, his brothers. Verse 3, now Israel, that's Jacob, uh, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because Joseph was born to him in his old age. We once again see the sin of the family come come to play out. Favoritism. Remember, this has been a learned behavior by Jacob, right? Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so Jacob, he made a long-sleeved robe for him. Jacob doesn't even try to hide it. He gives Joseph a robe, a beautiful robe. He acts openly on it. Hey, Joseph is my favorite son. I'm going to give him a coat that none of my other sons have. How do you think they would respond? You've probably heard that this coat is a coat of many colors. Well, the best translation probably doesn't... It doesn't get at that. It gets to this idea of a royal long-sleeved robe, one that only royalty wears. That's what the youngest son gets to wear. And as an oldest son, I know I would not like that personally. 
And so Joseph has his coat. Verse 4, when he saw his brothers, or sorry, when his brothers saw that their father had loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And he could not, they could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. You can assume that this action has shattered what family peace they have left. The brother's hate begins to grow. This is the environment by which the family lives. The environment now that all these events are going to take place. And I want you to notice how Moses uses words multiple times. Look there, verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him. Second time he's used the word hate. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. That's the second time that he uses the word dream. It's going to be used seven times in this chapter. Seven times. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Notice here that Joseph, he's described as kind of foolish, immature, talkative, and young. The youngest brother tells his older brothers, you're going to bow down to me. What do you think about that? Verse 8, are you really going to reign over us, his brothers said. The, the word brother is used 21 times to highlight their actions and how grievous they are. Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more because of his dream. And what he had said, his brothers knew all too well what that dream meant. And they hated him for it. And so they suspected that this was from God. Right? We've seen dreams happen before. God showed up to Jacob, to Jacob his father, and gave him a dream. But this, these dreams are a little different. You see, when Jacob had the dream, it was very much so very clear God speaking to him. These dreams need to be interpreted. But again, for us to know that these are dreams from God... Dream, the word dream is used seven times. Perfect. But now look, at Joseph's foolishness comes out again. He won't let up on his brothers. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. They're just now getting over the first dream. And he tells them a second dream. This time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. <laughs> this dream encompasses the whole family. Or his stepmother... Leah, the moon, and even his father, the sun. This is clear that Joseph is now royalty. That it's going to bow down to him. Who, who bows down? What would the sun and the moon bow down to? God. And so Joseph is clearly a ruler. Is he now the seed, the king, the son who is going to crush the head of the serpent? Is it going to be him? He's got a royal robe. He's like a king. He is going to have people bow down to him. Is this going to be our, the one who provides restoration? Well, Jacob and the, his brothers aren't going to have any of that. Look at verse 10. He told his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had? He said, and, and I and your mother and your brothers are really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? And we see the culmination of Joseph's immaturity and his father's favoritism, and his brother's hatred. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. Their hatred has now solidified into jealousy. But his father kept these matters in mind. The stage has been set. The confrontation is ready to happen because the brothers and even Jacob suspected this was from God. 
Even though that that's maybe true, favoritism has led to deep resentment and conflict between them. So now look at the second family trait we see here in the passage. Deception leading to brokenness. Look at verse 12. His brother had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. That should be an alarm for you. If you remember back before Christmas, Shechem is not a good place. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I am sending them to you. I'm ready, Joseph said. And then Israel sent, uh, said to him, go and see how your brothers and flocks are doing and bring word back to me. You can understand because there are alarm bells going off in your mind. It's Shechem is not a good place. Hey, Joseph, go check on your brothers. Make sure they are okay. So Joseph went. He sent him to the Hebron Valley, and he went to Shechem. Now Shechem was about 50 miles north from where they lived. He sent his 17-year-old son 50 miles to a land that's not good, has not been good to them. Verse 15, a man found him there wandering in the field. Jacob's like, I don't see my brothers. Where are they at? They've left. The man says, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they are pasturing the flocks? They've moved on from here. The man said, I've heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And so Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, Dothan was 13 miles north of Shechem. The perspective now of the story changes. We've seen it from Joseph's perspective. Notice here in verse 18 that now it's going to change to the brothers' perspective. They saw him in a distance. You might wonder, how in the world are they going to see him from far away? How in the world are they going to notice him? The coat. The favorite coat. The favorite son. The beautiful robe that he wears. They see him coming. And before he would reach them, they, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes the dream expert. Here comes the dreamer. So now, come on, let's kill him. You, you can see them kind of twisting their mustaches like an evil uh, supervillain. Let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say this, that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. You can feel their hatred. You can feel their pain. Let's kill him. Literally, the word for homicide in the Old Testament. They conspire to kill him. Murder in the first degree. Just like Cain killed Abel. And just like Esau wanted for Jacob. And by killing Joseph, they believe that they can kill his dreams too. They believe they can undo all those dreams that he's had. But his, but his older brother intervenes, his oldest brother, verse 21, when Reuben, the firstborn, heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him after he returned to his father. So Reuben, we get a note here, he wants to save Joseph. He said, just throw him in the pit. And he's thinking, I'll get him out after everybody calms down. Now look. What word is used? When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, that long sleeved robe that he had on. And they took him and they threw him in the pit. Now the pit was empty without water. Although Joseph is, is not dead, he's still alive, he's thrown into a pit. 
And the pit was most likely a cistern. It used to be full of water. And in God's providence, it's not full of water. So he doesn't have to tread water. But will they decide to kill him is the question. Look at their callousness in verse 25. They sat down and ate a meal. They ate a meal. I mean, I've been pretty mean to my brother. Don't get me wrong over the course of my life. I really have. And I have repented of those uh, things against him. But... To eat a meal while your brother's in a pit? I mean, you can see where the strife and the conflict has culminated now into hatred and action. And if, if you were reading our Bible reading plan, if you remember in chapter 42, it talks about how Joseph cried out to be rescued. And his brothers are just sitting there eating a sandwich. And they're, they're, they, just, they can hear him cry and weep. As they sat there. And when they looked up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. They're travelers and merchants. Look at verse 26. Judah, another older brother, said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother? What if we cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. For he is our brother, you know, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When the Midianite traders passed by, this idea for Ishmaelites, they'd intermarried, same people. His brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. Now, you might, you might be tempted to think, well, Judah was trying to save Joseph. He didn't want to kill him. He was trying to save him. No, Judah was after his own personal gain. Judah wanted money. Money is better than having Joseph around. How else can he profit from Joseph's life other than to sell him? But here's the thing. We see in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy that selling someone into slavery is just as bad as killing them. It has the same punishment. Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24. But remember, who's not there at this point? The older brother Reuben. He wants to rescue Joseph. But verse 9, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. Reuben was unable to persuade his brothers to not harm Joseph. And when he went back to his brothers, he said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? The question is, I am the oldest brother, and now I am responsible for Joseph, and now he's gone. What can I do? How can I go back to my father? It reminds us of their earlier plan now. How are they going to tell their father? Verse 31, so they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat. That word slaughtered is used for sacrifice. We see it in Genesis chapter 3. And dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the long-sleeved robe to their father and said, We found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? Notice a couple of interesting points here. The sons deceived their father. Irony has hit the roof. Remember, Jacob is the deceiver of all deceivers. The master trickster, he used goat skins to go in and receive the blessing from his father Isaac. But his sons don't use goat skins. They kill a goat and dip Joseph's robe in the blood. But number two, the sons manufacture evidence to hide their sin and to deceive their father. They're actually able to distance themselves away from it. Notice, they sent the 
royal robe to their father. They didn't go with it. And they said, you tell us, is that Joseph's coat? And Jacob gets his own conclusions. Remember, this is learned behavior at this point. Verse 33, his father recognized it. It's my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters, even those that had married into his family, tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol in my mourning. And his father wept for him. Literally, Jacob is inconsolable. He would mourn until he dies. Sheol, the pit. That's what he means by this. That I can go down to hell. That's how broken I am. And if his brothers thought, hey, Joseph's out of the picture. Maybe one of us is going to get our father's love. We'll get a new robe. Not a chance. Jacob is broken. He he mourns. And then there's a, there's a bright piece of hope in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. We'll come back to that in the coming weeks. We've seen now some fairly de- depressing events right, take place in the, in the lives of God's people. Not only do they sell their brother, they deceive their father. How do we move forward out of this story? Well, what, what is there to do? How does God work out his plan of salvation and restoration for his people? We have to ask the question now, on 2,000 years on this side of the cross, how does this story point to Jesus? How does this story point to Jesus? This story culminates in family dysfunction, strife, and conflict. Again, you might be wondering, where's God at? We've not seen him. We've not heard him. Where is he? Although we haven't seen him and he's not been mentioned, he is here. Look there at verse 5. Look back up at verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. And back in verse 9. Then he had another dream. Who gives dreams? God does. God gives dreams. This is God's plan. That, that yes, the family of Jacob would bow down to Joseph. That is his plan. If you're a Christian and you even grew up in the church, you know that this will happen. This will happen. They will bow down to him. This is God's plan. But it wasn't God's plan for God's people to deceive and hurt and to respond in brokenness. Ultimately, we know that these dreams do come to pass. Right? But what's the problem? There's a couple problems I see. Joseph isn't ready to lead. You see, he's immature, talkative, foolish, and he he just keeps laying it on thick. He's not ready to lead. He will learn, both in Potiphar's house and in prison, that suffering molds and shapes us. But there's even a bigger problem here. God's people, Joseph's family, are not ready to follow Joseph. The brothers want nothing to do with Joseph. They want nothing to do with God's plans. They want nothing to do with what God would have them do. So what do they do? They try to kill him. They want to kill him, but they sell him instead. What should that remind us of? 
Well, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus shares a parable about some wicked tenants, some wicked renters. They were farmers who worked a vineyard that someone owned. And during the harvest, the owner sent a servant and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to collect my fee, your rent. I'm going to collect some of the grapes and the juice and potentially wine. I'm going to collect that. But those wicked renters, they beat that servant and they sent him back. We're not giving you rent. And so the, the owner's like, you know what? I'll send some more. Well, they beat those servants and they even start killing them. And, and the owner's like, why would they do this? I'm going to send my son. Surely they will respect him. Surely they will accept his authority. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus is he's giving this parable. This is what he said. The renters look and they say, look, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. They seized him, killed him. They threw him out in the vineyard. You see, these wicked renters are, are Joseph's brothers. Joseph foreshadows Jesus. But notice what happens to Joseph. He's sold into slavery, makes his way into Egypt, becomes Pharaoh's right hand and second in command. He will save his family. Why does God do this? Because God had promised to Eve and Abraham and now Jacob that a son, a seed, would be born, who would crush the head of the serpent. God will keep his promise. But before Joseph comes second in command, he must suffer. And he must suffer silently in the pit. On the way to God's restoration is suffering. Jesus fulfills that. Then when God the Father sent him, Jesus, in the world, he was rejected. He suffered at the hands of God's people. He was beaten, mocked, and scorned. He died on the cross, the death that we deserved. You see, Jesus is more than Joseph. Jesus is the son of God, not just the son of Jacob. Jesus did die. He was not just thrown in a pit. He was put in a tomb. But Jesus rose again out of that grave so that he could save his people, not just from famine, but the very effects of sin and sin itself. Jesus is a better Joseph. And Jesus doesn't ascend to the, to the throne of Egypt. Jesus ascends the throne of God in heaven. And now he reigns and rules and mediates on our behalf. He will then establish his perfect kingdom here on earth when he returns. Joseph points us to Jesus. Joseph helps us understand this is what our God has done in the midst of horrible brokenness, horrible sin. Our God is able to use it to complete his plan of re restoration. Because we know that Joseph dies eventually. He is not the son who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is. Jesus is. And so with Jesus, we see God. We're, we're fortunate to be on this side of the cross to see that Jesus is the culmination of God's plan of restoration. And that Joseph points us to him. He's a shadow of what's to come. So we've seen our passage. We see how this passage points to Jesus. But the final question for us this morning is, how do we apply this to our lives? What does this mean for you and me? We find ourselves in very similar situations like Joseph does. We find ourselves in suffering, whether it's sickness or trial or persecution, that we find ourselves in suffering in this world. 
You've experienced family brokenness, family conflict, family strife. You know what it feels like. Maybe you've been sick, diagnosed with a disease. Maybe you've gone through general hardships in your life, difficulties, family. Maybe you've lost a family member, a spouse, a loved one. Maybe you've been forgotten and maybe you literally feel like you are in a pit. That you're lonely like Joseph was. But here's the truth, church, that our passage this morning teaches us that God is still working out his plan. No matter the evil, no matter the wickedness, no matter the brokenness, no matter what you feel inside, our God is working for us. And you can take great comfort in knowing the fact that God is able to make his plan work and is not stopped by any evil plan. And he can heal all brokenness in his son, Jesus. This is why Jesus came to restore us, to restore us to God. Joseph is one of the major pieces in that plan. If there's no Joseph, there's no Egypt, and there's no Joseph in Egypt, then God's people die in a famine. And if God's people die in the famine, there's no Messiah. There's no Jesus, and God didn't, doesn't keep his promises. And so God uses this wicked opportunity to get Joseph in the right place at the right time to save his family so that the Messiah can be born of God's people, Israel. Without the Messiah, we are stuck in our sin. Without the Messiah, there's no serpent to crush. There's no serpent to fight because he, he's, he's ruling us. But Christ is the true son who is able to give us victory over suffering and comfort us until he returns again for his church. We must understand that suffering often leads to glory. Suffering often leads to glory. It's very true in the case of our Lord and Savior. That he would suffer at the hands of his people, die on a bloody Roman cross. Suffering leads to glory. The question for us, church, is will we fully trust in this Christ? Will you follow God's Son and will you be like Joseph's brothers and reject him? The true son of Eve, the true son of Abraham, the, the seed who crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. The imagery comes to mind that when they nailed that last nail into his feet on the cross, it is almost, you've seen the image where the nail goes straight through the serpent. That Jesus crushed him. Jesus comes not to deliver you from just the effects of sin, but from sin itself. Jesus did this by taking on your sin and your punishment. Jesus died on the cross, because, and that was our place to die. That was what we should have gotten. But, but in God's mercy and kindness, Jesus took our place. He was offered up by God's people who unjustly killed him. But in God's plan, God used that. The, mo the most horrific event in all of history, the most unjust event in all of history, saved us and offers us the opportunity to be made right with God. The question is, will we trust in Christ? Will we trust in him? And if you do trust in him, there's a, a follow-up question. Will you trust his word? Will you trust daily in his word? Will you follow Jesus by submitting your life to his word? We don't need dreams, church. You might think it's really cool. It would be great 
and I'm not saying that God doesn't work in those things anymore. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is I don't need a dream. You don't need a dream. We have God's word. Perfect, holy for us, for our good. We have something better than dreams. That God's word is revealed to us, God's plan for his people, that we get to see it from beginning to end. That we know God is victorious in the end. And if we are with him in Christ, then we're victorious too. That we will get one day, we will be in a place that has no more sin, no more brokenness, no more evil, no more grief, no more sadness, no more loneliness. We will live with our king here on a new earth and a new heaven. Church, in times of suffering and difficulty, will you trust him? Even though you can't see him working, even though you don't know what he's doing, you don't understand, will you trust him? The fact that God works despite evil in our world should provide comfort to us. No matter what comes our way, our God has overcome. Would you read the Bible? Would you follow Jesus and see this great plan is already working out? And that one day God will right all the wrongs. Every injustice, every time you've been sinned against, every time something terrible has happened because of sin, every disease... Jesus is going to heal all of that. You can be comforted. But comfort comes from trusting God and trusting him fully. So church, today, will you trust him? Let's pray and ask God to give us this kind of trust. God in heaven, we see a horrific story. Horrible. But a story that you're working in. A story that you're able to use. A story that you're able to to turn the other way to protect your people and to provide for them and ultimately get to Jesus. Ultimately, bring the Messiah into the world so that he would die at the appointed time for us. And God, I pray that we would trust this son. That we would give everything we have to him and trust his word. And in times that we don't understand, in times that we don't know, that we would just look back on your word and see how you've been faithful every single time. God, would you give us, give us the ability to trust you in hard times? Would you use us as a church family to to surround us, to, to give us hope together, to remind us of the story, remind us of what you've already done and what you're going to do? God, use us to love each other and comfort one another. God, may your word be received today. May it sprout fruit in our hearts. And may we walk in comfort, fully trusting you. We ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.